This is an epic quest across an ancient, magical kingdom as Uma, a reluctant young shaman, seeks her revenge against the king who killed her family. But, guided by otherworldly allies and unlikely friends, Uma unlocks a whole new world. Evening's Kingdom, written and read by Paula Schmidt. If you're enjoying the show, don't miss an episode. Subscribe via eveningskingdom.com and I'll send you a note each time a new episode is out. And, you know, in the great grand someday, should this epic quest ever become a traditionally published book for you to hold in your hands and enjoy, I'll email you and let you know. This is Paula Schmidt, and thank you for listening. Coming to you once again from the psychedelic yet pleasingly tidy interior of Psychedelicious Lex's Closet in Denver, Colorado. We continue. Chapter 44. Noor. For days, Noor tried courting back Nejmi's favor. He pinned bright moss to the collars of the candle turtles trundling along the garden paths, and to the harness of Nejmi's mad white catling, which she never rode, but often visited. He even helped the servants bejewel her tea trays with it for there was only one place in Chalice where that particular moss grew. And every afternoon, Nor waited for her there in the grotto beneath the palace, amongst the damp carvings and the bright, clinging moss. He touched the moss and thought of Nejmi, willing her to come. He wandered through the scrolling darkness, now and again reaching out to touch the faces of carved kings, queens, priestesses, of holy goddess, standing proudly atop the necks of conquered monsters. The blue paint of the trampled beasts was long faded, so the dead things beneath goddess could only be known by their terrible fangs. Nor swept along between the candlelit altars, entirely alone, but for the respectfully vanishing shadows of servants. He admired his own shadow, rising along the walls between the figures of kings and goddess for Nor's boyish shadow was quickly becoming a man's, with the same long, slender nose as his mother and the proud carriage of his father. Now and again he paused, hoping Nejmi would come and see him at such a moment. But she did not. Until she did, she arrived silently, barefoot, though it was cool here, in the secret womb beneath the city. Nejmi came cloaked in the sky blue of her mother's people. She wore her cloak open, boldly pinned back across her perfect, regal shoulders. Seeing her, Nor righted himself quickly, grinning, for the moment she'd found him was not with his noble profile set alight between the statues, but as he was pissing down the side of an altar. You caught me, Nor said, opening his arms to her. Nejmi only smiled, staying where she was on the path. Nora leapt up to join her. Her cloak was like skylit wings floating along behind her. The pale sash of her dress within it was a single piece of fabric, artfully wound and knotted about her strong, slender body, as though Nejmi was an extraordinarily rare and brave flower. 
she would not take his hand. I thought perhaps I'd relieve the turtles, Nejmi said to him, airily. Their heads are heavy enough without your garlands of moss. That was kind of you, Nor said. They walked along companionably. It was late in the day, and between the altars on either side of their path lay twin groves of darkness. Here and there, islands of light trickled down from the carved openings overhead. Whenever Nejmi moved through them, her cloak floating behind her as if water-borne, her beauty stabbed Nor's heart. I've not wanted to see you, you know, Nejmi said. I've needed you, Nor said. Nothing is real when you're not with me. The last day we saw one another, I've never felt so close to you. And I've always felt close, but that was the most alive I've ever felt. She wore a wreath of braided moss in honor of the occasion, but not the necklace he'd given her. Even so, Nor thought he could scent the palm oil on her just the same, as if she'd hidden the amulet he'd given her somewhere else on her person. That was the sort of game his mother Devi played with the king. Devi loved gifts, and the king loved to give them to her. But whenever Devi felt slighted or unattended, she'd pout and retreat, which always brought the king swooping into their chambers, seeking Devi's favor once again. Nor's thoughts drifted peacefully now that Nejmi was beside him. He could easily imagine a whole life with Nejmi playing such games, if that was what she wished. You mean the day you murdered Kestrel, Nejmi said. We have never been farther apart. She looked away sharply, lifting one hand to her face. I can't stop seeing it. You and Kestrel, her face, and that poor dead woman torn open in the river. Do you know what I learned about her? Nor was confused. Who? Nejmi spoke quickly, almost merrily. She was trying not to cry, but her clever, alert little face crumpled. The old woman who was washing the soldier's hair in the river. She couldn't see Kestrel coming. Do you remember? She couldn't get out of the way. Oh, you don't even remember. Nezmi looked down bitterly. My mother and I, we found her people, and we sent them gifts. Our men told us what they said, how they stood there remembering her in the doorway of their muddy little shack. Her little children... She was blind, but she wasn't as old as she looked. She looked old because she was starving, Nor. Because every mouthful of food she did not eat was another her children would have. So she'd never sit with them at the end of day while they ate what she'd begged for their table. She only stood there, watching over them, telling them fairy tales while they ate, so their food would taste better than it was. Nor became aware of the deepening silence around them. That can't be true, he said. Our kingdom is rich. Godix would never... The shadows. The servants. Perhaps they were here, clinging to the walls, spying on them after all. He moved closer to her. Nezmi, it is not safe to speak this way. She held her chin high, scoffing at him, as if Nor were suddenly much younger than she was. You won't even let yourself know what you know, she said. Nor, we are rich. But our people are starving. There is not enough water, not enough food. While much in the palace goes to waste and is given to our animals as scraps, the people go hungry. And even though they are hungry, some of them starve themselves so their children can have the little food they find. Their love is not less than our love. 
The poor people love their children just as much as... Let us talk of other things, Nor said. Nezmi, let me rest my eyes on you. You're such a light in the world. I see that here more than ever. You light up the dark. Your beauty... Forgive me for what I cannot say. When I'm with you, I cannot think. Only let me look at you and rest my eyes a little. Perhaps we find things beautiful in order to learn, Nezmi said. But she let Nora lead her to a bench carved into the wall beside a fountain. There was a circlet of light above it, and he arranged her beneath it, knowing she must be cold by now. Her slender, bare feet, so soft and cold. You know what I need to know. I love you. Let us be allies. Be my queen. Or, if you would be king, I will be your queen. We will make Tensingland a place of true plenty for all, as you wish. Nezmi shook her head. And what about Bastel and Derwin? Will you kill them as you killed Kestrel? Nezmi, an eel writhed in Nor's soul. How could she not understand? He wanted to grab her, to force her to understand. The sunlight ran to Nezmi. She stared up at him fiercely. To Nor, she'd never seemed more beautiful. Her darkness, the blacker for the brightness of the light, the perfect depths of Nezmi's skin were as irreducible as her goodness. Yet, how her mother would be angry at her for not protecting her skin from the light and preventing its further bluing. Nora loved Nezmi's darkness. How in some lights, she was almost implacably blue, like a fanged demon from a fairy tale. And yet she was good, so good it made his heart ache. Nezmi leaned close, letting Nora squeeze her hands. If we united, we could rule together. All four of us. You and I and Bastil and Derwin, and perhaps we would be the greater for it. More ears to listen, more hands to obey the will of our people. This grotto should be public for anyone to come and drink, to have respite from the heat of the day. So too our mist gardens, the stables, everything should belong to everyone, not only to the king. Nor shook his head. But at any moment, if the Lampisa's brothers killed us, then they would have all the power. How could we sleep? How could we have children? You can't simply trust others to be good. And the people don't know how to lead themselves anyway. They'd run wild. Trust must begin somewhere, she said calmly. You are good and kind, Nezmi, but the rest of the world is not like you. This is why we have soldiers. I would give my life to keep you safe, Nezmi. But you want war, she said. I saw this when you were with Kestrel. That is not the way to lead, my love. Nezmi touched his cheek. A leader holds space for his people. He does not crush them to his will. He is their will. He is their instrument, not the other way around. He heard their two languages again in his mind. Power, strength, control. Trust no one but me. And Nezmi's own river dawn bird cries. I don't know how to love you. Nor sat back. And when someone tries to murder you, Nezmi, how would you have me behave? Serpents may hiss, but they need not bite unless they are stepped upon. A serpent, which is dangerous, can be removed from the garden, Nor. It can be released somewhere else, somewhere wild, not a garden, where they can no longer do the people in the garden any harm. Nor shook his head. Serpents returned to their nests. She came close again, 
her face so near his that he could almost count her eyelashes. The kingdom of Goddix is here. It is now, if we let it be. There is no need for violence. There's plenty for all. But we all must open our hands and share what we have. Nor was listening, but he couldn't help himself. He kissed her. And with his touch, he turned Nezmi to rain. And Nor could swear he smelled the sweetness of it all around them. The damp minerals and softening earth of Nezmi. As if Nezmi crying were the world itself crying. Crying, becoming soft. I'm sorry, Nor said. Because Nezmi aroused him impossibly when she was sad. The cold blurring her eyes. The heat of her face and neck the way her face drifted in his hands. Nezmi sighed closer to him, and then Nor knew that even though he made her sad, in Nezmi's own secret, impossible way, he was home to her as much as she was to him. Her body beneath the blue cloak was like the knob the gleaming cypress knees, hard and satin to the touch. She was a leaf caught in a current, and the tide-like thrill, narcotic, of Nezmi's neck in his hands. The stone in Nor's mind came forward suddenly, and with it, a terrible thought. He could break Nezmi as he'd broken Kestrel. Nor drew back, hating himself, hating his thoughts. The sunlight drifted away, leaving them in the dark. The small fountain beside them went on promising rain, and perhaps the shadows came here and drank from it when the royals were not looking. Nor felt hot with the thought. The theft of royal water. He put his head in his hands. For how could it be true, all the things Nezmi said, when there was plenty in chalice for all? They were rich. Godix had made it so. He thought of his mother's words. No one can speak, and not one thing can happen had Godix not decreed it. Nezmi's shadow rose and slid away leaving him there alone. The light was blue. Chapter 45 Arayaku The packed earthen floor of the smoke baths was painfully hot, but Arayaku still took his time, disrobing gracefully. The weight of the villagers' gaze both cooled his blood and made him calm. He'd never asked to be a representation of otherness, Yet he'd had no other choice, and with his proud bearing, Arayaku tried to show them, without ever saying a word, that all their preconceptions were wrong. He was not bad luck. He was not a monster. Not a freak. Not anyone to be pitied. Arayaku was strong and young, and his body was amazingly capable. After all, he'd survived the unthinkable. He stood on one hand, naked, serene, and beautifully formed all the way down to the ends of the narrow stumps of his thighs, which tapered away, pale as torn roots. He smoothed back his hair and calmly followed Hala to the bench, hopping up easily beside him. When the men sat, they were of equal height. As Arayaku looked at Hala, he saw in the other man's dark eyes the twin reflections of the great fire before them. The darkness of Hala's pupils was satisfyingly unknowable, and yet, Arayaku had the strangest feeling. Hala knew him utterly, saw him truly. Talu took his place beside them. 
One of the boys threw more seeds on the stones, sending plumes of sweetness dancing up around them. The dizzying heat became a luxuriant embrace. For a moment, Araiku blurred with the pleasure. He drew in a shaky breath. I have always loved to dance. Hala breathed in deeply and sat back, smiling. Yes? Chapter 46 The Story of Arayaku I have always loved to dance, Arayaku said. My family was poor, and both my parents were sickly. There was never enough to eat, but at least I could dance. And I was not born as you see me now. I was born with long, thin legs. They could never bear my weight, but I used them like a tail, helping me to spring up high into the air and perform all kinds of impossible tricks. I danced with my shadow. I could make it do anything. And everyone saw in it whatever it was they most wanted to see. People came from all over Tintern to see me. I danced in the street before our caravan, and soldiers gave us food and gifts. But there was rarely enough to feed our lopes properly, and so finally we sold them and moved out to the five corners. I danced more and more. I hardly slept, but my brother and father and mother were often hungry, and so was I, and we all became sick and then sicker. Of course, you know of the five corners. It was shameful we had to live there, and for my mother especially. We Chiriklo need to live on the road or we become sick. We need to move to be in the open air. And she'd never lived in one place so long. Then, my legs became infected. I had no sense of feeling in them, you see, so by the time we realized it, there was no saving them. We used what little we had for my amputation and then applied Palmer's oil to prevent further infection. But while I was sick, I could not dance. We did not have enough palm oil for all of us, and they all insisted it be used for me so that one day I could dance again. Finally, my brother and father became too sick to even drink water, and they died. Then my mother died too. When I became well, I bought them a beautiful little ship, and I burned all their ashes in a, in a river so their spirits could rove free forever. And now, whenever I meet a river, so too, I meet my mother's spirit, and my father, and my brother. After that, I traveled alone a long time, sleeping where I could, eating what I was given, and then one day I met Tolu. I was performing before one of his executions. He was angry with me for stealing his thunder, weren't you, Tolu? No one had ever seen a man dance without legs before. So, I thought, we'd better combine forces, otherwise Tulu might have split me in two. The villagers laughed. Some of the men were listening with their heads thoughtfully to one side. They were all looking at Arayaku's eyes now, not his stumps. Tell me of the world, Hala said. And Arayaku told him, Of an execution at dawn, of six captured royal assassins, and how Tolu had stuck each of the assassins all over with great splinters of pitch, and then lit them up like huge candles, and prodded them to dance around an enormous fire, until one by one, each could no longer be restrained from throwing himself into the flames. Of the voices of Gaddix on the wind, all across the great singing sands, 
luring many caravans to their eternal sleep. Of caravan wagons painted with the colors from dreams, and soldiers so beautiful they made a man's blood turn backwards with longing. Of the secret grotto beneath the royal palace, where the wealthy Chiriclo ocean merchant bastards of the king mingled with his royal servants amidst magic fountains and sacred statues of all the tensing kings and queens that had ever lived, and yet may bless you still with their favor, there in the secret onyx throat that rings beneath the great salt river. Of the uncountable scents on the winds of the world, and how Oriaku had enjoyed them all, oceans tang and sunburnt bones, and the silvery rust sweetness of nighttime blooms beside the Eel River, of the rich, musky scent brought by the winds before a monsoon in coastal lands, Holocide. You make it all come alive in my mind. Yes, now it all lives in you too, Oriaku said. I think, perhaps, you have always been different from others, friend Oriaku, even if it were not for your local differences. I think this because I too have always been different. But I am obligated, beholden to my village. I believe one must always put their tribe first. What do you believe, friend Oriaku? Oriaku warmed. I am an otheist, as in, oh, life is beautiful. The villagers laughed. Now the fire was embers. They began rolling their necks and shoulders, limber, gleaming. Now that the smoke is finished, Hala said, we like to drink tea, scrape our bodies clean with oils, and begin again. Will you join us? This is my second belief, friend Hala. I like to say yes. They went out into starlight, giddy with the sudden coolness, and stood pouring oil over one another's bodies, and then used the shaved edges of short sticks to scrape the oil off again. Oriaku felt deeply relaxed and profoundly happy. Sheep gathered in, licking up the salty oil from their bodies where it fell in the dirt. The animals happy murmuring, their smell of lanolin and the clean mud and men. Now Oriaku was fairly vibrating with happiness. He looked over at Tolu and saw the executioner's face was open and relaxed, as Oriaku could not remember ever having seen it. Isn't it late for your people? Hala said. Ah, oh, my friend, but we are unsupervised. By the time they come looking for us, I'll have had enough, Oriaku said. Tolu and Hala laughed. By now the other men had filtered away, for it was so late the moon was low again in the sky. I think I would like to stay out here while you two enjoy yourselves, Tolu said, sitting down against the dome peacefully. He looked up at the stars. Go on and relax, Oriaku. It will just be you and I then, this time, Hala said warmly. They returned into the smoke bath, and Hala built up a small fire. Oriaku began to speak again about physical intelligence, how memory could be stored both in the body and in physical motion. For example, I remember my mother like this. He rolled each of his shoulders in a wide and graceful circle, fully forwards, fully backwards, and then did a saunter and smoothed back his hair. Hala laughed. And I remember my father like this. Arayaku did a merry little jig on the packed earth and then leapt up beside Hala again. They looked at the fire happily. 
And how will you remember this night, friend Arayaku? Hala said softly. And he kissed him. Chapter 47 Nor Fallen Leaves The Bloodwinds disappeared by night. They left a strange detritus in their wake, as if a storm had removed them from the face of the world and not a royal escort. Nor wandered their abandoned quarters, feeling curious and still oddly distant from himself. For Nezmi loved him, yet she refused to love him. And Kestrel Blodwin was dead by his own hand. And if Kestrel had managed to murder Nor instead, would it be Nor's own chambers that lay now in such shameful, exposed disarray, open to anyone who cared to wander in? This tray of food, tumbled into one corner, all covered in flies. That agony of tangled bedsheets, dragged out into the center of the bedchambers. Dresses and fineries lay abandoned across the threshold, as if Kestrel's mother and both their oligarchs had reversed, undone from their fineries, nakedly all the way back into the wombs that bore them, becoming once again tiny and frail. And here lay a single red slipper, like the forgotten half of a broken heart. Nor picked the slipper up and carried it along without realizing it. Later, he noticed it still in his hand, suddenly having transformed into a shabby, disreputable thing. He dropped it in the grass, and one of the shadows bore it home. A slipper the color of love, scorned by a one, adopted by another. How right that another would have to be made to match it. Chapter 48 Arayaku and Uma Let us go now to the well and drink, Hala said. Perhaps the spirit of your mother will visit you there. It is an enchanted well, is it not? Arayaku said. I've always heard it is dangerous to drink there. Only if your intentions are not in line with the health of our village, Hala said. It is full of the skulls of our protectors. He smiled. Their spirits still live there. They were walking slowly through the quiet center street. Moonlight caught the eyes of animals hobbled out to graze. The dust of cook fires and sweat baths hung like sweet, vanished wreaths outside each sleeping dwelling, as if they were walking through ghosts. Arayaku was warmly aware of Hala's calm, confident gait beside him, of their easy, matched pace. There is someone I would like to bring with us to drink at the well, Arayaku said. May I? A friend of yours is a friend of mine, Hala said. So Arayaku woke Uma, and concealed in her cloak to respect the ways of the village, she trailed Arayaku and Hala to the well of skulls. Two village men stood guard. They were asleep against the bricks, and leapt up when they saw Hala. For my friends, no charge, Hala said, waving them aside. Leave us. He pulled up the bucket and gave Arayaku the drinking gourd. You may invite the spirits into you, Hala said, if you wish. They will bring you good health and fortune. Arayaku heard droplets of water echoing down the walls of the well. The smell of so much water in one place was intoxicating. He was aware of Uma behind him, shapeless in the dark, and was glad she was with him. 
hearing and seeing all these things, too. He closed his eyes and drank. It was good. This night has meant much to me, friend Hala, Arayaku said. I will be sad to say goodbye. Yes, Hala smiled, his eyes warm. And yet, I think we will meet again. Until then, my friend, may you walk with the wind, Arayaku said. I have never heard that expression, Hala said. It is from the world, Arayaku said. Keep it in good health. A souvenir. I can think of a better souvenir than that, Hala said. It was Arayaku's turn to smile. Come and get it then. Chapter 49 Nor A court is a place where suddenly... Everyone knows a thing at once, without ever knowing where they first learned of it. Everyone knew the Bloodwin Queen and her oligarchs were taken away disgracefully in the dead of night, back to the little town of their origin. A tiny crossroad in the Scrublands, famous for nothing but its grim little well. So, too, everyone knew of the king's abrupt decision to take a trip into the countryside, near the military outpost of his birth and that only Nor and Devi were invited. The royal procession of gloriously outfitted carriages, catlings and lizards glittered with finery as they proceeded across the river, with the jungle on either side, and the day moon glowering down enviously, becoming pale, and paler still as night crossed into day. The beautiful ancient stonework of Chalice gave way to humble domes outside the city proper, and Weir Rothwau explained their construction to Nor how the little villagers' domes were made from twine and coiled grasses, of hair, blood, and mud. The walls were nearly strong and heavy as stone. Do you see the smoke, Highness? How it is red. They are burning incense to scent the way for us. But all that smoke and those dry rooftops, Nor said, won't it set the reeds alight? Well observed. Not at all. They make their fires so big that the sparks are caught up within the central column of smoke and are extinguished within it. So much smoke, Nor said admiringly. When they cook, each dome becomes its own cloud forest. No doubt we will be smoke bathing. Weir Rothbow smiled, rubbing his belly with anticipation. Very pleasurable. You'll enjoy it, Highness. The peoples came and knelt on the side of the road singing their thanks to the king and to Goddix, and to their great good fortune for having been born Yang. Everywhere was the sweetness of burning resin and happy village songs. Nowhere in sight was anyone crippled or thin or blind, with that Nezmi were only here beside him to be reassured. They ate richly as they traveled, and never had his mother Devi looked more beautiful. The sudden favor of the king made her glow like the dawn. The military outpost of Chalice was satisfying in the perfect order of its design. The soldiers' quarters were laid out in a grid as far as the eye could see, all the way to the fortress walls above which rose the great, jeweled leaves of the jungle. The soldiers carried themselves so proudly that Nor vowed to carry himself thus evermore. On the first evening, after resting from their welcoming feast, humble though it was compared to the regular palace fare, nor enjoyed his first smoke bath. The interior wall of the smoke dome was richly carved with patterns pleasing to the eyes. 
and the heat took Nora's breath away. The great scarlet flame at the center of the room seemed alive as the watchful eye of Goddix themselves, a great oculus into another world. And above it, just as Weir Rothwell had promised, was the dark, thick, roiling smoke, like a trapped storm. The heat was stunning. Nor staggered against it as they came inside, so much so that the king's ancient, graceful oligarch, Nebbiolo, took his arm. He felt Nebbiolo's grace flow into him, as if she were animating him from the inside out. Such was the power of Godix and the royal oligarch. Nor's skin felt crisped from the heat, but he was aware of Nebbiolo's serenity. He felt as if he were breathing it in with the smoke. Thank you, great lady, he said finally. Only a pleasure, Highness, Nebbiolo said richly. It helps me to breathe from the far horizons. Try it. Do you see what I mean? They were sitting together, the king and Devi on a simple bench beside them. Strange to see such elevated personages in so rural a surrounding. Nora laughed happily and the others did too. I do, he said. And King Derwent poured water on the stones outside the fire and made smoke bellow up until Nora thought surely he wouldn't be able to breathe. But he could breathe, and he did. And the heat worked through him like medicine, loosening his sore muscles and, they told him, toxins from his blood and his very essence. It all came out in the sweat streaming all down him. Nebbiolo was smiling, the beautiful creases of her face running with sweat. She reached out and stroked Nor's face, and then showed the prince his own sweat gathered in her hand, mingling with her own. She laughed and wiped it on her thigh. Sometimes, too much is just right, Nor said with difficulty. It takes a strong heart to withstand such heat at one's first time, Nebbiolo said. You do well. Forgive my saying it, but as do you, he said. Your heart must be far stronger than my own, although you are my elder. Nebbiolo laughed merrily. Perhaps. The king makes me strong. How many seasons have I, your majesty? King Derwent stroked his beard thoughtfully. Nor tried to sit up, to look attentive, but his head swam. In the light of the fire, all their faces seemed to run like melting paint. Now like demons, then like aspects of goddess. He leaned back resting against the stone, but then moved away again, for that was hotter still. Far more than I, the king said, blessed be. And how many have you, highness? Nebbiolo said to Nor. I imagine only one quarter of yours. That makes you a lucky boy, she said, with so much life ahead still to be enjoyed. And that makes you a lucky woman, Nor said, for nothing is guaranteed, and you have already enjoyed the fruit of those many years. Finally, the heat was too strong, and when the king gave the signal, they went out and plunged into cold baths, and then entered a second smoke dome, which was larger still, and not so hot as the first. Here they drank refreshing juices, coming and going from the cool baths, and last of all, they enjoyed a final room where they received oil and stone massages from the nameless holies stationed there for royal use. Here, the king arranged himself on a table alongside Nor. The prince had never been so close to his father before. The intimacy stunned him. More than even the heat of the first smoke bath, 
he tried not to smile like a fool. But the king was grave. He gestured for silence, and instantly the massaging hands slipped away, leaving them in quiet. My son, I would like your advice, he said. Do you believe someone who has betrayed you can ever be trusted again? No, majesty, not at all. And how does one know when someone may no longer be worthy of trust? Nor stretched thoughtfully. Well, the smartest people rarely heed the advice of others. The voice in their own head is too strong to listen to anyone else, so they're not much of a threat, as they can't operate in groups, unless they also have charisma. Those ones you must always watch out for, the ones whom others blindly follow, but usually the smart ones are easy enough to pick off one by one because the cleverest almost always walk alone, so hardly anyone listens to them. But what if someone is, as you say, both clever and a true leader, the king said. Nor nodded. You must kill them, and all their followers. Even then, they cannot always be stopped, because an idea grows stronger when attacked. So it is better first to exile them, than kill them all in some isolated place, and then kill everyone who knows. Leave no witnesses to tell legends that only stirs up more followers. It's comfortable to think we are too strong to have to worry about such things, but it is not wise. Now the king nodded. We like to pretend we are safe. It's comfortable to pretend, Nor said. As comfortable as it is to follow. So we must be as aware as if we were walking alone. Nor tapped his head. But then again, if you should look up and find yourself actually walking alone, he paused. Nebbiolo and the king looked over at him from their beds expectantly. Duck, Nor said. The olders roared with laughter, and Devi beamed with pride. That's good, that's good, the king said. Nor waited for them to quiet, and then he spoke again, seriously. When the bones have been pulled from the flesh, the body can no longer stand. If you remove a threat, you must remove all of it. But I have not answered your question, Father, as to whom you can trust. Perhaps, in the end, we can only trust in Godix. Nor's father smiled, his wet black eyes fierce and wild, assenting. This morning, you were a child, my son, but you will go to sleep, a man. The king sat up and clapped for the holies to rejoin them and the priests and priestesses came drifting back, smiling, unpeddling their garments. And so it was that Nora learned the colors of all the sacred stones, of the intimacies of holy men and women, and found each one was ecstasy in the smoky light of this strange and separate oculus. Chapter 50 Uma The spirits from the Well of Skulls had reached for Uma all that dusk. As she approached the well, their proximity became almost deafening. She nearly staggered as she stood behind Oriaku and his new friend Hala, grateful for the great black cape she wore, muting her presence. And then the men all left, and Uma stood alone with a pail and wooden ladle, listening. The well itself was ancient. A great tunnel so deep She could believe it went all the way to the lower world. Its belly was filled with skulls, and the spirit of each remained tethered there. The sound of them all calling up to her made Uma feel so lightheaded 
that she thought she might fall in. What enchantment enslaves you to this place, spirits, she said. And instantly, one of the spirits took form before her. His skull was larger than any of the others, missing its lower jaw, and he was fanged like her. You are Wutar, Uma said. Drink and speak with me, the spirit said. And then, before she could even think the question, yes, I am your teacher, he said. Uma drank. Oriaku and Hala were gone, and now Uma lay in the safety of her own bed inside one links. She couldn't remember how she'd gotten there. She lay numb, as if embalmed, and yet, simultaneously, she was in a world of spirit, atop a bed of leaves, somewhere in the wilderness of a past world and knew she was shepherded in this place by the dead Wutar shaman whose skull was so long ago thrown in the well. The taste of well water was still on her lips, sweet and clean. Who are you? Uma said. And a rich, crisply enunciated baritone voice came from beside her. I am the guardian of the well and this portal. The dead man stood before Uma, blue as if mist-born, with huge long locks worn down to his waist and thrown back across one shoulder, as Tolu often did. He wore his scarlet cape with his sash undone, and Uma could see his powerful, well-fed body. Here with the spirit, now she saw the land as it was millennia ago, green and cool, and teeming with life everywhere her eyes rested. I am Yale of the House of Rivers, the dead shaman said. I have not yet made offerings to my allies, Yale, Uma said politely. It is not safe for me to journey here with you. We will make offerings to my allies then, friend Uma. Yale knelt. He wore simple leather thong sandals and loose airy pants of the style Inga once favored. He saw Uma noticing them and smiled, as if understanding her thoughts. We are all connected, Yale said a single consciousness, simultaneously in all things. Come, he beckoned Uma closer, and she saw fragrant pignon resins appear within his cupped palms. Yale blew these full of prayers, and then gently scraped out a dish in the sandy earth before them. He placed the resin into it, where it plumed into fragrant smoke. They call you the Oneling, do they not? I don't think of myself that way, Uma said. Let us pray, Yale said. He raised and bowed his arms to each direction reverently. Uma followed him as he turned, and together they made a slow and beautiful revolution, honoring the spirits of all directions. Great serpent of the South, of rebirth and holy energy everlasting, pray watch over us as we undertake our journey. Great Catling of the West, grant safe passage to our spirits, and pray watch over us as we journey. Uma felt the energy of Yale's allies and the four directions wreathe round them, sparking her blood. She sailed in power, brilliant for Yale's proximity. His upper body was overlaid now with that of his ally, a massive catling made of powerful, pale green light, and whose head masked Yale's own. The fabric of the mystery danced all around them. Great hummingbird of the deep north, 
mighty guardian over the realm of spirits. Pray watch over us on our journey. Father Eagle of the East, mighty guardian over the realm of our ancestors, please watch over us as we undertake this journey. Yale held a fist to his heart, turning once again as the incense rivered away, dissolving into the green air. Father's son, mother's soil, we send you our love and honor. We surrender in greatest respect and joy to your teachings. Hail spirits, full of grace. May peace be with you and in you and of you. Amen. Yale knelt and bowed, and Uma did the same. Finally, Yale stood again, offering Uma his hand in the old way. It is done, friend Uma. She rested her palm atop his, and they walked that way, connected by the warmth of their palms to the long-vanished green overlook which would one day become the Well of Skulls. Looking down, Uma saw everything that was lost. A wide and clean river, thickly wooded at either side. Merry people dancing, men and women alike, freely outside their houses. What happened to this place, friend Yale? In my time, this land is dead. But in yours, it was an oasis, Uma said. Kingdoms come, kingdoms go. Thresholds come, and they go. And so, too, do you, wandering spirit, Yale smiled. Wander on with me, if you wish. You were a very great shaman, Uma said. She felt a mesmeric awareness of Yale's powerful ally, and her respect for it and for Yale made her feel almost drugged. In truth, I did not know the spirits of the directions would ally themselves to us, for she'd realized the great catling allied to Yale was, in fact, the great catling of the West. Allies seek us just as we seek them, Uma, Yale said. But even if a spirit is not our direct ally, we may still ask them to watch over us as we journey. For we are never alone on our travels, and there are those who watch. There are many ways of skillful Uma, many magics to further one's strength, no matter how hollow one's bones. The shaman looked at her wryly. Even for bones which are not so hollow at all, Uma paused. You see deeply. Yes, it would be an honor to learn what you know. Come aboard then, Yale tapped his forehead. And to me, he laughed. You are perfectly safe. Step into me and know what I know. Uma stepped closer, and then closer still. Yale's eyelashes were short, curling backwards in tight coils like the woolly hair of his powerful arms. As the last of the incense burst in a shower of sweetness behind them, Uma stepped into Yale. And at once she was within him, looking out at the world from within Yale's center of being. His energy all around her was warm and strong and welcoming. And Uma felt as if she were standing in a river of knowledge which was everything Yale ever knew and experienced. Yale's own childhood, his initiation by fire, a wizened old shaman doctoring him afterwards with cooling plants. She was laughing and talking to him, her long hair tickling his tender ears as she said, 
if you did not think you were about to die, my child, it would not be an initiation, but welcome, welcome. He'd grown up to become a fabulously powerful shaman, bringing great wealth, fortune, health, security, and prestige to all the peoples of the area, which was beloved as a safe neutral zone for Yang, Wutar, and Chiriklo alike to parley, marry, and commingle. It was the pride of all their nations that, for a time, they began to blend into one. With Yale's divinity and guidance, they lived in alignment with the seasons, enjoying the flowering and fallowing of the natural way, and always had enough to eat, so long as each took no more than they needed. But the great leaders of Tintern took notice, as did the then king of Tensingland, and they were greedy. They did not heed Yale's cautions, and began damming and diverting the river, so that they might have pleasure gardens and mist gardens, and raise up vast luxury crops in all seasons. And the seasonal overflow of the river, which once brought the rich, fertile soil across the land, began to falter. It came less and less, and then not at all, and the river died. The fishes and green life and beasts that drank of it died, and the people became violently tribal once again, as people have always done in times of scarcity. The safe zone was gone, and Yell was old and sorrowful. His great land of peace and equality was a desert and bones. Finally, late one evening, he was murdered by a grieving Yang, who believed the elderly shaman had cursed his wife. Yale's skull was thrown into a pit. Immediately, water sprung up in that place, as it does to this day. Yale died that we might live, the people said. But time passed, eroding the bones of forests and the names of men and women, gods and tribes, and other skulls joined Yale's in the darkness. Yet there is beauty here, in my grave, Yale said, seeing Uma's sadness. When we are alive, only the king's voice can live far from his body. When we die, friend Uma, we are all free. Why do you stay in the well, she said. It is my home, Yale said simply. But you could go on, into the mystery you could be with your ally, she said. Yale smiled. The well is my home, and we are all always connected, no matter where our weary bones may rest. He waved his hand, changing the subject. A gift for my friend. You shall know what I know. The river still runs beneath this land. You will know where to find water for your people as you journey. Uma was stunned. I thank you, she said. He bowed. Only a pleasure, friend Uma. I wish you success and happiness. Friend Yale, Uma's voice broke. I would ask you one thing more. Would you, would you bless me? Make me strong enough to defeat my enemy, the king. Could you do that? What you seek is already seeking you, my child, Yale said gently. He put his warm hand to Uma's forehead. You are blessed. All life is blessed. She thought her heart might break. But will I succeed? Yale exhaled softly. I would like to advise you as once I advised the leaders of the peoples. Would you hear me? It would be my great honor, she said. Just as rage is sadness turned outwards, so our hatred is only fear, he said. It is our fear of loss. Do you understand? So long as you hate the Yang, 
you are attacking yourself. You fear they will erase you, but it is your fear of them, your hatred, which will erase you. It is the same thing. Do you understand? How you can still exist among them is what I cannot understand, Uma said bitterly. The Yang murdered your land. They murdered your treaty. They murdered you. Yet they are still my friends, my teachers, he said. In the well, we all live in peace. Life can be difficult, but death has its comforts, he said. All is forgiven. Yale laughed. There, I have spoken, and you may, of course, do with my thoughts what you will. He threw up his hands. But the leaves about them were unquiet. The sound made Yale look up and fall silent. Uma looked at him. You are concerned. What is happening? Only for you, my friend. We have drawn attention to ourselves. Yale brought the memory forward in his mind, and Uma saw it clearly as Yale lived it. He was a strong young man, Yale said, whose first wife suddenly became sick and died. I forget their names, although his skull now lies near my own. At the time, he was certain I wanted his wife for myself, that I poisoned her spirit to steal her away. He came to me in my sleep, when my spirit was traveling far from my body. And that is how I died, Uma. The wind wrapped its icy scarves about them, and the green forest where they stood withered to shivering dark bones of themselves, as in winter. He is here with us now, Uma. Beware. Coldness grabbed her heart. If she died here, would she be trapped in the well? Imprisoned forever? Drowned amid Yang? Uma felt as if she would burst with her longing to flee. But as her spirit stood there with Yale's, her body still lay frozen in her bed, as motionless as if embalmed. She could see herself lying there, unable to run, racing through the corrugated township of farmers and fishers outside the gates, handcarts, cobblestones, birds startling up into the air, and she was free, scrabbling up the soft red dunes onto the cape overlooking the harbor, free and fast and getting farther, farther still. No, she could not die here, not yet too soon. Yet Uma saw the man above her, his dagger gleaming overhead, and she couldn't move. With every gasp, Uma felt less and less air in her raw, smoke-damaged lungs, and she couldn't seem to draw any more. Standing there with Yale, her spirit looked down at her body and watched it growing cold, her small, blue self thrashing like a fish, weakening even as she watched. Everything loves to be alive. The terror flooded Uma's mind, making it solid blue ice. It would not work. She couldn't think, couldn't breathe. Yale's voice spoke in her ear. Uma, remember yourself. Surrender now. Exhale. 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 It was a struggle to stop trying to gasp in air and instead let herself exhale. But finally, she did. And then... Her body was suddenly not her enemy after all. Uma snatched a breath and broke the spell. She sat up and grabbed her cloak. Instantly, the ghost of the man who had murdered Yale vanished. And Yale, too, faded away and was gone. 
Uma sat alone in her caravan, the wooden boards creaking as they cooled in the desert night. She drew the cloak around her, burying her face in it. The forbidden red of her people, the color of Yale's own garments, of her beloved coastline, of heart's blood. She could still hear the dead shaman's voice clearly in her mind. Remember yourself. Her ragged, terrified breaths slowly became deep and even. Uma pulled a fur across her shoulders and then slowly laid her black yang cloak atop it, for outside it was cold. She stepped down from her wagon, and in the silence of a golden dawn, Uma walked to the well and lit a stick of incense. Well may you rest, my friend Yale. As she turned back to her caravan, Uma saw a small, familiar figure sauntering towards her on his hands through the empty main street of the village. Uma, Orayaku said happily. My friend, you know me even by my shadow, she said. Orayaku laughed, his handsome face shining. Only fair when I suppose you've noticed mine. She looked at him. You've had a very great adventure, I think. Orayaku beamed. Tonight, I think I may have met the great love of my life. But look, in the distance, do you see that? Around them, dawn was warming the desert, and the villagers stirred, making water outside their dwellings, stoking up fire for the first meal. In the distance was a slow procession, raising up a ragged dust all about it. Music, Uma said. That's a royal procession, Orayaku said. One of the villagers glanced up towards the great line of travelers, singing towards them with the dawn. She straightened clasping her hands together joyfully. Queen Bloodwin has returned. Perhaps the king is with her. King Tensing is with her. Chapter 51 Dawn The Courier But as the carriages came to a halt, they did not open. The guards moved before the doors of three carriages. As the village watched, a courier sallied forth with a black flag towards the Chirclo encampment, and the villagers fell quiet and pale. None dared speak. The courier was young and bright with his mission. Until recently, he'd been on post in Tintern with Prince Derwin Lampesis, who was some harvests younger than he. Everyone said how fortunate it was to receive training at the same time as a prince, and always there was an electric excitement about ordinary things wondering if Derwin might join, and if so, what he might do. But Cyan, for that was the courier's name, always felt a curious distaste for the Lampesis boy. The way the boy was so dark, and the limp way he carried his weapons, prince or not, he seemed dishonorable. Seeing royalty up close sowed a strange, disquieting malcontent in Cyan. He'd never felt especially close to Godix, and found it hard to believe in divine election. Cyan felt, secretly, that Derwin Lampesis would never be king. And if Derwin was still alive back at Tintern, Cyan knew it would not be for long. Not with the order he held in his hands as he raced towards the Chiriclo encampment. His own two hands. The Blodwin family was being eliminated after the ignoble death of the Princess Kestrel, and this could only mean one thing. The final culling of royal children had begun. 
to think they'd traveled all this way, and his captains had kept their orders a secret all this time. Cyan fairly reeled with respect for his commander. The great man took it upon himself to explain the cullings, which happened amongst royals as times of ascension came nearer. When blood runs in the streets, Godex sees the greatest fortunes made, he told the cadets. Align yourself with the right power, and you will be rich. Align yourself with the wrong power, and you will repent having ever been born. Cyan had raised his hand. He always believed in spelling out the terms, whether or not he agreed with them, especially if he didn't agree with them. Captain, but what if we overstep the fate allotted to us? Should we not let Godex direct our fates rather than take it up ourselves? His captain smiled. Yes, my boy. It is simple. Simply let Godex guide your hand. Cyan smiled back satisfied. He'd heard the tales of the powerful, bloodthirsty Prince Nor. Even the soldiers of Tintern seemed to back Nor, although he was not the representative of their own hometown. It was a relief for Sion not to have to believe in the younger Lempices, and the calling of Kestrel and her Blodwin seemed a gift in narrowing the field. For Sion yearned to make his bet on Nor sooner rather than later, Perhaps he might even marry a palmer, and thereby transfer to Palmstone instead. The animal outcropping of ugly Chiriclo carriages was close now, and Cyan spurred towards them, trying to arrive with a flourish as his commander would have, to dismount with the same confident swagger. He stumbled, but no matter, perhaps no one saw. The situation he saw was as he'd been instructed he'd find. The executioner's wagon would have two great staffs before his door, with scalps of every length and nation nailed all down each one. Cyan thrilled just a little, seeing it all as described. The wagon to which the staffs belonged was as red as something flayed alive. Lamados, it said, in a large, neat white script above the door. That prideful touch, almost human made the scale of death writ upon the enormous staffs seem suddenly horrible to Cyan. As nausea rose in the boy's gut, the executioner seemed to form himself out of the dark and came striding down towards him. He was a big man and shirtless, so heavy the stairs flexed beneath his steps as he came. Cyan leaned back, gaping up at him. The executioner was golden-skinned, with great heavy locks like merchant's ropes tossed back over one shoulder. Can't you read, he said, his voice booming across the scrub desert. Chiriclo, Cyan said, confused. The huge golden man shrugged. You have a message for me. Read it. Cyan swallowed. You are to execute the dishonorably exiled Queen Blodwin and her two oligarchs at dawn, after commencing the suitably disgraceful ceremony of your choosing. So be it. The king has spoken. Cyan bowed, holding the order out before him to the Chiriclo with both his hands. Tolu accepted it and then held it at his side. So be it. His will be done, he said. Cyan bobbed upright like a blade of grass. And my payment? Tolu said. I will come to you after your work is done. The sovereign has made handsome arrangements. Cyan hovered then, as if expecting to be praised. He felt as if he'd become part of something. An integral strand in a net as it cast up into the air, and he did not know how to come apart. Right well, sawed off then, Tolu said. We meet again tomorrow. 
Have your arrangements in hand after the ceremony. And boy, be prepared to be quick about it. Chiriclo, Cyan said again, stupidly. Somewhere, a creature rushed underneath a bramble bush. The sound of it scraped loud in the silence, and he jumped. Toulouse smiled, his lip curling. He waved the king's order at the little village behind them as if it were only a scrap. You mistake yourself, boy, if you think this little village will be glad to see their brightest daughter felled this day. Be prepared. Mark me. This is Paula Schmidt, and thank you so much for listening. As you know, I've been posting weekly, but I'm now considering a bi-weekly schedule so I don't get burned out and to preserve writing time. So please subscribe via eveningskingdom.com so you never miss an episode. Just click subscribe and send me your email. I'll send you a quick little automated note every time a new episode is out so you never miss the show. Here's the thing, if by chance I should land a literary agent and this tale shapeshifts into a proper novel with a beautiful cover and gorgeous inky pages you can smell and scribble on and actually hold in your hands, I'll email you and let you know. That's eveningskingdom.com. I got a beautiful, perceptive review this last week from the joy in me that I wanted to share with you guys. The joy in me writes, Paula has a gift. Connecting deeply with her world to connect with the humanity of this world. Sharing the journey of each character. She doesn't shy away from the inner work and dialogue of her characters. She embraces their flaws and struggles in order to create fully formed avatars. Lady, thank you so much. Your words make me feel very seen. I'm honored you're engaging with the story, and I think your word avatar is especially interesting. Characters are so many things. They are representations, and they are tools. And most definitely, you do find yourself thinking through them. So, avatar, that's a lovely and perceptive phrase for character that I don't think I've ever come across before. I love that. Thank you. And thank you for taking the time to write a review. I really appreciate it. Some, although not many, of the characters in Evening's Kingdom are inspired by people I know. Like, Tolu is an archetype I've used in almost all my stories since my 20s. We lived in Tucson, Arizona briefly, and while we were there, we met some of the most iconic and amazing larger-than-life people, including some extraordinary guys who were paratroopers at the time. The trauma they had to process, the way they carried their wounds and continued to fight and grow, and just do what they had to do for their families, it still floors me. I'm honored to call them my friends, and they are to this day a cherished part of my life. Anyway, ever since meeting them, I find there's always a Tulu character appearing in my tapestries. A wounded warrior with a massive soul, and a bunch of stupid fart jokes. But Evening's Kingdom has her roots in a ayahuasca ceremony I was called to some time ago. The collective subconscious the collective consciousness, allies, deities, and demons. In Evening's Kingdom, I renamed this the mystery. And all the characters of this story, these avatars, 
on their quest across Tensingland, they've helped me address and explore and work with the web of magic and mystery that connects us all in life and in death. (laughs) May it ever be so. I hope that may be the same for some of you, that their quest may resonate with your own. So, um, books. How about some book talk? As you know from the last episode, I love books. But I always resisted reading or watching Game of Thrones. Because one, I knew I'd get completely obsessed. And it never felt like a great time to just, you know, be a psycho. And two, because I wanted to get this story all situated and make sure the world was entirely my own. But I wrote and fully edited books one and two during the first COVID-19 lockdown. Together they come to 600 pages, you guys. And they're finished, as finished as they will be until my dream literary agent gets their hands on them, a moment for which I cannot wait. I love editing, but I'm now at the point where I need a trained gimlet eye. So if this is you listening out there, I can't wait to meet you. And books one and two of Evening's Kingdom eagerly await your mind. Anyway, so books one and two were finished, and Game of Thrones. The way it happened was, I might have accidentally watched some of season seven, and some of eight, and the finale. I know this is sacrilegious, but Psychodelicious Lex and her lovely arborist husband Jeff, the owner of Denver's for sure Arbor Pro, were closing out a rewatch of the whole thing, and I got sucked in. I had no idea I would get as sucked in as I did. Full on freak out into it, super fan status. Holy crap, amazing. It's amazing. I love the character arcs, how people become the opposite of what you might expect, but in a satisfying and complex way, which you notice a song of fire and ice. Did you know George R.R. Martin was a professional chess player? Of course you do, because everybody else in the world has already read his books and watched the series, so you can all laugh at me as I roll through this. Um, I bought the books. I just started reading the first one, and I'm in awe. The amount of groundwork he did to set all this up is staggering and incredibly inspiring. In Evening's Kingdom books one and two, this is a bit of a teaser, but the duology I'm in the process of reading to you now is actually the origin story of this entire world. (laughs) Book three, the one I'm writing right now, it takes place a few generations later. I've got it all plotted out and I have a crappy first skeleton draft written, but seeing how George R.R. Martin structured his Game of Thrones, the other night I was lying in bed, super exhausted, couldn't sleep, staring up at the ceiling, and I got exactly the ding I needed as to how I can expand this world out to be a little bit, a lot bigger than I was thinking. Like maybe four to six books. We shall see. Doing it this way is going to take me... (laughs) A lot longer to set up than I'd originally planned, and it's tricky, because recording and editing time for this podcast is already devouring what was previously writing time. But I will find a way. And yeah, this is a big part of why I'm thinking publishing every other week might be key. I have a tendency to make things way harder on myself than they need to be, which is something I'm working on. I'm also already fetishizing early morning routines, and energy management crap, which for me (laughs) is stage one that happens right before I dive deep into a big writing push. Writing a novel is a marathon, not a sprint. Writing a series is 
a psychosis. <laughs> so energy management is everything. Again, I'm doing all this in the hours before and after my day job. So if you or someone you know is interested in becoming a patron, please visit eveningskingdom.com and click support. And then the buy me a coffee button. There are options for one-time tips and monthly memberships. And your donation will warm the tired cockles of my happy heart, just like a cup of the earth's blackest coffee, which I love. Mmm, coffee, my friend. That said, if you're not in a place with finances to spare, but you want to help, continuing to share Evening's Kingdom with your whimsical friends and writing reviews is incredibly, unbelievably helpful. Thank you so much. It's the best feeling knowing the story is alive in you and that she's out there spreading her magic. Thank you for listening, for dreaming, for spreading the word. I wish I could get the story recorded for you more quickly, but, you know, I want it to be as perfect as I can make it. So you can just dissolve into the story and I can paint your brain, hopefully unimpeded with glitchy sounds. The air conditioner is running in the background right now and it's hot here. So I don't think I should shut it off. I hope that you won't be able to hear it, but we shall see. Forgive me if you can. I've asked my sweetheart for some nice editing headphones for my birthday, and those might help me catch weirdnesses. I'm excited to get better. Learning. (laughs) I live to learn. And for coffee. (laughs) So, speaking of Tucson earlier, some fun news for all you mystics, malcontents, weirdos, and witches out there, my people. When we lived in Tucson, I got curious about the art of tarot, and I took a class with the most wonderful teacher, Judy Jennings, who turned out to be one of the most soulful, insightful, and truly, deeply considered wise woman I've ever known. We've been friends ever since, and she has taught me so much. Tarot imagery is incredibly helpful in finding ways to explore and address anything. Plotting your books navigating hard times, learning to parse and trust your instincts, new angles to come at things. I imagine kind of like Brian Eno's oblique strategies, which I've always meant to more deeply explore. There's so much wisdom, centuries and centuries of wisdom, secreted into the symbols of tarot. I mean, every single symbol and color on every card and every deck is a bit different. So having a teacher is delicious and important and can be extremely fruitful, even if you already have an acquaintance with tarot. And Judy is wonderful. She sees so much, and she's gracious about the difficult truths in an empowering way. And she's now holding classes again, via Zoom. Judy Jennings with two N's. Her upcoming class is a feminist approach to interpreting the tarot. All decks welcome. I believe she also has a book in the works, too. I got a peek at the early draft a long time ago, and I loved it. To learn more about the class and connect with Judy, you can write to her directly at tarotclass at yahoo.com. That's tarotclass at yahoo.com. Tarot is T-A-R-O-T. All right, my dear friends, I think that's it for today. This is Paula Schmidt. And thank you for listening. Please subscribe via eveningskingdom.com and stay tuned. The rest of the story is just down the road.